This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Thanks again to everyone supporting us on the podcast through Patreon. Patreon allows our listeners an opportunity to contribute to the podcast and allow us to bring you great guests and content each week. Thank you to all of our patrons and a special shout out to Jonathan Lambert for being our largest donor. You too can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. I believe you're the very first Marsoc that we have ever had on the show. Of course, we've had, you know, Christian, you know, recon guy and stuff, but never Marsoc. I think there are a lot of people out there, quite frankly, including myself, that don't really know the pipeline. Again, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, um, I joined the Marine Corps out of Texas. You know, I, uh, I remember it all started back. I mean, it sounds, sounds cliche, but I remember watching the invasion, um, happen when I was in high school, sitting in biology class and like watching, watching the push into Iraq. And I was like, that sounds pretty cool, you know? And, um, it was kind of a little deeper than that. Cause I came from a very, uh, a family that, was very academically intense, we should say, you know, and I was, you know, they were pushing me towards a service academy. Um, hmm. And just uh, to be honest, I was just kind of done with school, you know, and in addition to the military kind of being my ticket out, I was, um, I kind of, kind of thought that not just the military, but I was watching all the ground pounders on the invasion. And I was like, that's it. That's a ticket. Like that's for me. Uh, then I kind of, that was around my sophomore year of high school. And so then I kind of did some more research, you know, and was bought into everything I read where like ugh, the Marines, they're the best. This book told me they were the best. So obviously, raw. yeah, raw. Raw, raw. <laughs> obviously they're the best. And so um, that's, that's it for me. You know, like one, uh, one news clip <laughs> that stuck out in my mind was a big firefight at night and they were recording through NDGs and I was like, Star Wars, you know, yeah. it's real. So as soon as I graduated high school, um, moseyed on down to the recruiter and uh, actually I stopped in the Navy first, you know, and I was like, um, I want to be a, I want to be a SEAL, you know, again, reading <laughs> all the Believing all the, <laughs> I know, <laughs> believing all the propaganda. Um, and they had me take a practice ASVAB. Um, and I guess I did pretty well on it because they saw the results and um, they were like, so there's actually a limit 
to how smart you can be and join the SEALs. And I was like, what? No way. And they're like, yeah. So what we're going to do for you, just you, check out this nuclear engineering program we have. You know, you get to be on a submarine. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, no, no way. Absolutely not. <laughs> and then uh, they were like, plus you wear glasses. So automatic disqualification. And I was like, uh, I don't believe you. Um, so the, rec- the the Navy recruiter like gave me five bucks and he's like, go watch a movie, you know, like, and then come back and talk. And so I took his $5, went next door to the Marine recruiting office and was like, I saw a, uh, I saw a, a recon poster. Um, he was Christian. I, yes. Yes, it was. He was drinking a cup of coffee. Same time. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, that's what I want to do. Um, but at the same time, um, I still kind of wanted to go to college, kind of. So yeah. my, my grand my grand plan was I'll go through the pipeline, um, join the reserves, go through the pipeline, come back, do college. Um, and I was like, yep, that's what I'm going to do. And then after college, I'll go active duty. Um, well, after I finished the pipeline, um, you know, boot camp, infantry, BRC, airborne, seer, all of that. I came back and all of a sudden was like dumped into civilian life again. And I was like, this is, I don't like this. This is not okay. You know, I had a really good time in the military. So I kept trying to, trying to get back into active duty. And at that time, the, uh, you couldn't do it from the reserves. So Hmm. I kind of, yeah, it was, it was, it was weird. Um, I kind of, so I kind of reserve bummed it up for a while, you know, and just went to school after school after school until when was it? It was about 2010. So I joined in 06 and around 2000, 2009, start of 2010, um, word came down that third reconnaissance battalion was gearing up for an Afghan deployment. And they were like, they need snipers. Do you want to go? And I was like, absolutely. Yeah, you were already sniper qualified already at this point then. Right. Correct. Yep. Um, And it wasn't even a question in my mind. I was like, yes. Yes, absolutely. I want to go. So did the work up. Met the guys from Third Recon in in 29 Palms for, what was it called back then? Um, Mojave Viper? I don't even know. It changes usually. (laughs) Yeah. All I remember is what we called it. Cax. I think it was before that. Yeah, we, I, I called it Mojave Earthworm or something like that because it was super anticlimactic and terrible out there. It was in the winter, so it was cold. Didn't think a desert could get that cold, but it, it got pretty chilly. Um, had a, a really kinetic deployment. Um, we hit Sangin Valley um, on May 18th, 2011. And then next day, May 19th, that was my birthday. And I remember uh, we were on Camp Leatherneck still and took mortars. Um, so I was like, ah, all right, right on, you know, a couple of rounds, no big deal. And I remember walking to from from my barracks to the recon compound on Camp Leatherneck. And then all of a sudden, all of these HIMARS Go, start going off all at once. Um, I think about 15 of them or something like that. 
and you, you can see the trail. They're all going, they're all going the same direction. And I was like, wow, you know, someone's getting after it. Um, so I make it to the compound and I run into someone there. I think it was the ops chief. He's like, you see all those HIMARS go off? And I was like, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Bunch of telephone poles flying through the sky, you know? Um, and he's like, where those things are going, you're going tomorrow. And I was like, wow, I guess this just got real, you know? And um, that was about how that deployment kicked off. And it was, it was a great time. Um, came back from that one in December of 2011. Um, and then again, didn't want to go back to a regular life. So I hopped on a couple of like training deployments down to Mexico and we lived down right by the coast on a little Mexican base. Um, and I ran a sniper school for Mexican Marines and special forces. You know, um, it was their last stop on their way up to the border states of Mexico where they were going to combat the cartels up there. Mm, okay. Um, yeah. And so that, uh, that I like being an instructor after coming back from a kinetic deployment, it was, it was a good change of pace, you know, because it, I, I enjoyed the work. Um, the Mexicans were very, were very receptive of it. And I knew that they were going to put it to good use. All the things that, myself and the other guys with me were teaching them and then some of them would come back and we would talk with them and they actually did put it to really good use um and then somewhere around that time a message came out saying that marsoc was accepting applications from the reserves now all of this time up to this point you had been doing more like active reserve stints. So 6 months or longer type of setups. Yeah, okay. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So you yeah. you at least had a paying gig, you know, type of thing. So you were right. running it well enough where you were at least trying to make a, a decent job salary and and that type of thing. Plus you're earning active duty um along the way as well. Rather Correct. than just one week in a month, two weeks a year type of thing. Right. And that that was, I hated that, you know, um, it might work for some of the support jobs in the military, but I'm a firm believer that if you're in anything having to do with the infantry, like that, that needs to be your profession. You know, it's it's not something you can do part time and get away with it. Mm -hmm. Um, you have to, you have to make it your life if you want to actually be be good at it. And so, um, yeah, that was just part of the way I, I validated that to, to myself, I guess, you know, I, right. I couldn't, I couldn't go active duty. Marine Corps just wasn't taking reserve to go active. So it just made the best of it that I could. Up to this point, let's see if I, I'm tracking well, you already had your airborne BRC sniper school. I'm assuming then that you also, um, maybe even had halo or, um, scuba or something like that as well. Uh, some of the additional schools or what were some of the additional schools that you went to up to this point? Uh, let's see. Um, BRC airborne seer cut that part. Um, and sniper sniper, foreign weapons instructor, uh, breacher mountain communications. I think the full name is like 
Mountain Communications Command and Control, something ridiculous like that. Um, it's kind of just a gut check in the mountains with a radio thrown into it. Um, uh, let's see, dive. I've been to combatant diver. Um, yeah, and then sniper. I had to take. I, I had to go back to sniper school. I failed the first time in 08 in stalking, um, and then I went back in 09 and passed that time. But um, yeah, so I'd I'd been to a handful. Didn't make it to Halo. Um, those were those seats were few and far between, and mm-hmm. generally not for reserves. Reserves, yeah, yeah. So, so Marsoc put a uh, recruitment uh, announcement out there. Correct, and I was like, "This is my golden ticket. This is it." Um, in addition to that, the war was winding down for conventional forces, and I was like, "This is my ticket to stay relevant yeah. in this war." So I uh, I trained up. Did most of my training down in Mexico on these uh, deployment little training stints. Um, And then came back um, from my last trip down there, went to dive school, um, and then essentially rolled right from dive school to um, MARSOC's assessment and selection course. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least you were physically fit when you got done with dive school. Um, But... At the same yeah. token, you were probably pooped, I would imagine. A little bit, yeah. Like, that's not an easy course just by the nature of it, you know? Um, <laughs> and But uh, plus side of it, I was well acquainted with the cold. Yeah. So those winter winter dive courses are not fun. Not even a little bit of fun. So it's oh miserable. Yeah, it's just awful. And There's just no warming up at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, it does not matter what you do. You're just, no, like, it's just 10 K. You're like, dude, why? This is, this why is awful. Okay. Like, yeah. <laughs> Five hours later. Yeah. yeah you're still in the water. God, tide, tide's coming in. I was going to say t- tide shifted, you know, yeah. and now you're barely moving at all. Yeah. It's, I mean, the cool thing was, is like the, uh, the jellyfish with the bioluminescence on them. I thought that was fun. You have a lot of time to look oh, at fish on the table. Yeah. 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 Nothing else to look at. <laughs> yeah. I think the worst part was the Budweiser line. You and nine other people on a single rope. That getting, was pretty miserable. Yeah, getting kicked in the face with fins, masks getting ripped off. and I think we switched drivers a few times, too. So then it was like, wow, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're zigzagging across the channel because no one knows how to use a tack board properly. And, yeah. <laughs> Just oh, awful. Slow down. My bad. Awful. <laughs> yeah, so went to um, assessment and selection. Um, and then was picked up from there. Had just enough time to go back to San Antonio. Um, pack up all my garbage. Um, sold all my furniture except for my couch. I couldn't find anyone to buy my couch, so I gave it to my next-door neighbor for a six-pack of beer. Um, and then threw a couple of things in the back of my truck and then headed back to Camp Lejeune for the individual training course. So what was uh, the length of the assessment of selection? And what does it kind of entail? I mean, is it very much like any assessment of selection where you're really going through and they're pushing you to the limits and 
you know, trying to weed out the good from the bad type of thing, I'm assuming. But I mean, if you can go into a little bit more detail, it might help those who are wondering how it might differ from other assessment selection courses, say from the Army, you know, or whatever. I don't really think there's any keys to the castle, but any semblance of that, I obviously can't tell. But um, a bummer, everyone's looking for that. Key. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I really thought you got it, but well, shit. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. So I'll just do it the hard way then. <laughs> so, assessment and selection for Marsoc is essentially two phase. There is what's called ASPOC. Um, assessment and selection preparation something course, I think it was. Um, and that's essentially a selection to get selected to go to selection. Um, bunch of cats show up for that. Um, I think around 200 showed up when I went through. And it's geared to prepare you physically um, and mentally to survive selection but at the same time, you're still expected to perform. And through the numerous different, different physical events that they put you through, um, there's obviously rocks. Um, there's a little bit of land nav thrown in there, um, things of that nature, uh, regular PT events and, and, and whatnot. Um, but you're still being assessed, even though it's quote unquote practice, you're still being assessed. Yeah. Um, so you have to do well there. And then once you get picked up from there, they load you up on buses and you go to the actual assessment and selection. And I haven't been through the Army's um, assessment and selection, but from what I understand of it, talking to friends who are on the Army side of the house and reading books and whatnot, um, it's geared very similarly to that. Again, more land nav, more rucking, you know. Yeah. And and a lot of, I, if I remember correctly, and I think um, if Scott Kinder were on here, he was one of the kind of fathers of MARSOC. He was a, a Green Beret, and it was really a lot of the special forces on the Army side that helped stand up MARSOC, as I understand it. So I would see that there would be some similarities, at least, in the very beginning. Absolutely, yeah. Um, there were a lot of civilian contractors that were helping there too, like as, as cadre. Um, and the vast, the vast majority of them were from the army. Right. And, um, and again, from what I understand, when, when Marsoc was creating the, the course, um, they had a lot of outside help and lessons learned from, from the army side of the house with how they do things, what they're looking for psychologically, physically, mentally, you know, um, and so they actually, it wasn't, it may have initially been something that they had to put together quickly to meet the, um, department of defense directives. Right. But, um, over time they really put a lot of effort into making sure that the individual that they selected at the end was exactly what they were looking for. Um, and from the time I spent there, uh, they seemed to do a pretty good job of making sure that the people that made it through are exactly the kind of people that you want to work with. So what's so, the duration of Marsoc's um, assessment and selection? Soup to nuts from pre-selection all the way through selection. It's about six weeks. Okay. Yeah. So again, fairly similar to 
how the army does it. Right, right. And so once you're once you're done with that, and I'm assuming that you still have all the the rocks and you know, like you said, the PT and and the other aspects and such, teamwork, um, those types of things. But at the conclusion of this, what's the next step? So um, for me, it was there was a class. Let's see, I got done in February. Um, and there was a class picking up in April. And you really love those winter courses, huh? Ugh, dude, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> winter dive to winter selection? Yes, Yeah. <laughs> it was awful. I hate oh. the cold, too. Um, yes, you do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, there was a – after selection, there's an actual training pipeline where they teach you everything you need to know to be a contributing member on a team. Um, and that was called the individual training course or simply ITC. Now, um, at this point, are they changing or designating an MOS or is it, or a specific skill, I should say, within MARSOC? Or is it more of you're just learning a lot of different skills? So that was interesting. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. The so the army way of doing things is that they will get everyone, um, you know, trained up, trained up to some to some degree in small unit tactics. You know, yep. make a baseline for everyone to work off of, yep. and then they farm you out to all their eighteen series specialties. That's right. You know, so, you, so you become really good at communications or medicine or engineering tasks and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the Marine Corps took a different approach. Um, and to be honest, I kind of like this approach better. Um, they took a little bit of calm. They took, they took medicine and they took explosives. They took a bit from H from each 18 series and they incorporated that into their, their training course. So everyone's trained, um, to a high level over multiple aspects. Yeah. And then once you get to your team, then you deep dive, whatever specialty you're going to be a part of. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so you're kind of a jack of all trades at the initial stage of it. And then when you get there, it's more of needs of the Marine Corps based on the team that you're assigned to. Correct. Yeah. Needs of the team. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so ITC, when I went through was broken down into several different phases. Um, and again, I was talking to some of my friends who are instructing there now and it's, it's a continually evolving animal. Um, they're always tweaking it, always making it better, yeah. and always, always they just want to produce the best product they can. Um, but when I went through, phase zero was kind of a the swift kick in the dick phase. You know, that's where all the pool stuff happened. Um, you were going on death runs at zero dark and stupid, you know, with – at a, at a dead sprint the, the entire way. Um, but they went over, they went over different, different skills that you were going to use throughout the entire course. Um, not tying radios, multiple different radios, how to send stuff over tac chat and HBW, um, SATCOM, um, HF, you know, um, UHF, all that, all that stuff. Uh, they went over medicine, um, call for fire, you know, things like that. And then they wanted to create that baseline because these were skills that you're going to use throughout the rest of the course. 
and apply them in different in different scenarios that you're go going to encounter. Um, after phase zero was done, we moved on to phase one. And that was, if memory serves me correctly, uh, small unit tactics. So that's where you get into like green side patrolling, patrolling in, in the woods, you know, um, not sending report formats or anything like that, but it's based heavily on the Ranger handbook, you know, how to set up right. a patrol base, how to conduct an ambush, you know, right. what movement formations you use through X, Y, or Z terrain. We did amphibious operations, you know, this is a Zodiac. This is how you do nautical navigation, you know, um, a lot of finning, a lot of boat work. This is how you do a beach infill into a patrol, stuff like that. Um, now, you must have been breezing right through this just coming from recon and the fact that you just came from dive school as well. So I, I'm I'm thinking that you're you're walking into this and many of these stages are pretty much good for you. Or And I'm curious, too, was was the cadre looking at you and going, oh, look at this guy? Um, it was it was very recon skills centric, you know, so like. I was happy for that because, I mean, I wasn't sucking hind tit, you know, trying to trying to keep up or anything like that. But, um, I mean, some of the guys were having a little tougher time with it because they came from the band or motor transport or something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it was a good opportunity to, to help people along the way and through that build unit cohesion. Because they had you divided up into teams, and you stayed with that team throughout the whole course for the most part. So, I mean, yes, it was it was easy, but in the sense that I knew what to do, but that doesn't take away the physical aspect of it. I mean, like no one likes to do a two k fin yeah. in the morning, you know, during well, during. Speak, speak for yourself, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I happen to be a big fan of two k fins in the morning. I so. yeah, I bet yeah. I was, <laughs> <laughs> About to go do another one today. My afternoon 2K. <laughs> Can't believe you would say that. Um, and yeah, no one likes patrolling through Camp Lejeune <laughs> with a hundred pound pack. You know, that's just not fun any way you cut it. So um, yeah, it was it was stuff I'd done before, but it was still just a suck fest at times. And let's see. After that, at the end of that phase, there was a there was a big culminating exercise and that's called Raider spirit. And that was kind of just uh, a massive patrol X, you know, where you stay out. I think we stayed out for 12 days, something like that. And you're just living out in Camp Lejeune wilderness and you just get order after order after order coming down, move here, do an area reconnaissance over here, move here, conduct an ambush, conduct a raid, you know, and you're just always moving around the, and they put different guys in different leadership positions, just like in Ranger school to see how they do. And again, you're continually being evaluated, but I mean, at some point, you know, regardless of how many times you do it, um, like the trees start talking to you, you know, and like that bush over there, sprouts some legs and starts running away and just start hallucinating your ass off. And yeah, that's just something you got to deal with at that point. So falling asleep while standing up. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that even happens, happened to me. Like you're walking and then all of a sudden you wake up and you're in the middle of nowhere and 
You're like, hey, psst, Bob, hey. <laughs> and yeah, it was not fun. Not fun at all. Um, Sounds like so much of this, though, incorporated Army Ranger School, you know, SFAS and Q, the SUT, and some of the other stuff that you were just describing. There's so many different elements here that have been kind of, you know, meshed together. Absolutely. And um, to Marsoc's credit, that was something I think that they did fairly well, was they took, they took lessons learned from each other's service component that had been doing this for decades longer than the Marine Corps had, you know, and then they also took lessons learned from their own past with the Raiders in World War II, you know, how they, yeah. how they did things, how the Rangers did things. And then we spoke briefly about the lessons learned from special forces. They incorporated, they incorporated that. And then let's see, after that, after that debacle was over, you were just like, Oh, thank goodness. No more Bush, you know, like, we can, I don't know, move on. And then next phase was special reconnaissance. And I remember the, the officer in charge of that phase coming in and he, he gave us a little pep talk. And he's, he was like, the best way. Well, first he was like, congratulations. You guys just got done with, with Raider spirit. And then he goes on this diatribe about how the best way to test the metal of your men is to throw them back in the bush after you, they just got out of it. And we're all just like, Oh no, it was terrible. Yeah. So now we did special reconnaissance and exactly um, what you needed to hear. Yeah. I was like, Oh, fantastic. Yes. Um, but that was more of all the report formats, you know, cameras sending back pictures. Uh, we did both urban and green side playing clothed and out in the, out in the Camp Lejeune wilderness again, you know? And, uh, yeah, it was just more, more suck factor, but different kind of suck factor. Now you had a, a ruck, a hundred pound ruck full of lightweight camera equipment. And now you just taking pictures, playing, playing bird watcher out there in the, out there in the wilderness. So, um, that was phase two. And again, there was like a big, a big culminating exercise at the end of that to incorporating all those different things. And then moving on to phase three, this was everyone's favorite phase because this was the direct action phase. You know, I had a grand old time there. Uh, it was basically just one big shooting package spent. How long was it? I think four or five weeks on the range alone. Uh, no, maybe it was three or four weeks on on the range, just rifle and pistol work all day, every day, thousands of rounds, like the amount of money that they spent on training, you know, and a lot of it just wasn't the arbitrary, we call it square bay shooting in the Marine Corps where it's just, you know, on my call, two shots to the body, one shot to the head. Yeah. Target, you know, then you're just blowing rounds down range as fast as you can. A lot of it was really good skill building exercise where they're working on hand speed, getting the pistol out of the holster as fast as you can, um, breaking down the draw, breaking down the reload, and then different tips and tricks for shouldering the rifle faster, acquiring targets, eye movement, head movement. And then, then um, we got into like barricade shooting and all kinds of different stuff. And that, that was a lot of fun. Then after the flat range was over, we moved into housework, you know, the 
the old kill house and just drilling CQB, CQB for eight, nine, ten hours a day. Um, first, it was one room at a time, and it just progressed eventually until maybe uh, we were doing at the very end. I remember in the culminating exercise, we'd progressed to the point where we were doing uh, simultaneous hits on a structure inside a inside a village from helicopters and and vehicles at the same time uh, with breaching, and it was it was fairly impressive, like how they constructed that whole phase to progressively move us to to the point where we were able to smoothly conduct multi-entry raids into a single structure with follow-on targets inside of a inside of a village um and to their credit i think it's the i could be mistaken but i'm i think it's the only service component that produces a shooter out of their initial training pipeline hmm. really so yeah I, I don't i think the seals go through something at the end of sqt i think um the bravos do a little bit of it at the end of the at the end of the 18 bravo course people come straight off the street and and go into massive training or do you have to serve within the marine corps first off either reserves or active duty so to be to submit a package to Marsoc, they um, I don't think it's changed. You have to be at least a corporal, so E four, and you can't be a staff sergeant. So corporal to young sergeant is the window that you can submit a package. Reason being, I guess there's you know X number of billets inside of Marsoc for um, this this rank you know, X number of billets for this rank. So um, the Marine Corps is not real big on putting a staff sergeant in a sergeant's billet, you know, even though like the men have no real issue with that. The Marine Corps is very structured as far as billeting and rank goes. I know that's caused some, some angst in the past, but again, very, very similar to how special forces in the army used to be, um, especially back when I was in, they, they had it that way because they only needed a set number of positions filled on an annual basis, and they knew that through attrition or whatever that they were going to lose some of those to the training pipeline. To, to limit that, it was an E4 with two years minimum active duty service, and then I think you couldn't be, like you said, an E6 with over 8 or 10. I can't remember what the window was at that time frame. Again, sounds very similar to help narrow that down but then, as you know the army then especially today needs special forces so bad they created the 18 x-ray program and you can come right off the streets which is probably why scott asked that question right right um i know i know the seals they take kids right off the street special forces does as well but um i think marsoc's holding strong where you need fleet experience to before you I've never understood that really coming straight off the street and going into um, a high speed role like that. You know, you you got to have some kind of experience really, and it, it I, I don't really get it. And, and that's the way we do it in the UK. You know, you you, you can't go directly into um, um, SAS or SBS um, straight off the street. You got got to have experience, uh, and it it varies on kind of four to five years experience they recommend and they, they actually fail people on experience wise so you can get what's called a stand up fail and go through the entire selection process and they can 
stand you up at the end and say, sorry, you failed, based on lack of experience. And you, you can get to go and do it all again. <laughs> oh, God, they, do, they don't tell them that yeah, at the very cool. beginning. How lovely is that? That's great. Yeah. I, I know somebody did, did it twice and had a stand-up fail on both times. Oh, no. Uh, it is. Um, I, I I agree with, with that approach of doing things. You know, um, it allows for a certain, like, foundational experience in the military. Um, I think it does a lot for the mentality of the individual coming in as well. Um, it's not to take anything away from the 18 X-ray program. I went to 18 Charlie, so I, I, I met a lot of a lot of guys who came in through the 18 X-ray program and good people, you know, good. They made solid SF soldiers after they went through the whole thing. But that being said, there were a lot of guys that, in my humble opinion, I don't think they quite knew what they were getting themselves into. Mm-hmm. And, and it kind of showed. Um, I could see benefits in it, you know, and you come in and straight off the street and you're a, you're a fresh sponge ready to absorb everything they throw at you and, and they, they build your habits based on what they want. Whereas, you know, in, in the conventional forces, you can pick up bad habits that they've got to beat out of you again and, and sure. put in how they want to do it. So I, I can definitely see the, the pros and cons of it. But we, we do something slightly different in, in terms of what you was just saying as well, Dan. So in, in terms of rank, so if you go through SF selection in the UK, you go straight back to trooper. So... You, everybody starts at the bottom of the teams and works their way up within the SF unit. Wow. So nice. that's crazy. So pay-wise, everything, you may have been making a whole... No. No? Well. Uh, so pay, pay is different, I think. So you, you get your SF um, um, allowance, if you like, on top of your rank pay, I think. But your your rank structure within the unit goes back to Trooper and then you, you work through. Um, but I, I, th- I think the pickup speeds is a lot quicker, obviously, if if you was coming in from, um, I don't know, a sergeant or something, and you go back to trooper, then as, as long as you, you know, are doing a good job within the teams, you'll, you'll move through fairly quickly, I think. Now that you mention it, I, um, I met a Australian sniper, um, who something similar happened to him. Um, I forget what rank he was at, but he wanted to move to the their their sniper section and the only way he could do it was give up a couple of stripes and so he didn't he didn't hesitate he's like yep let's do this and i don't think he started quite at square one but he had to give up a couple a couple stripes to do it and yeah he was happy to do it i think within our sf community it isn't kind of rank or or possibly even pay motivated you know the the guys want to go and join the uh, the SF teams to to be part of that community and to to do that tier one job and you know coming down a rank or, or two is is irrelevant really you, you still get paid but you get to do a job that's completely different to the rank you was doing anyway so that's the kind of the motivating factor hundred percent and to and to go off of what you were saying um, earlier um, so so the seals take people off the street as well. They might be stuck between a rock and a hard place. Again, not taking anything away from them. Um, but they are literally so like yes, they're a they're a sponge, but they have literally no I'll say infantry skills to 
to build off of. Like being NSW does not correspond to anything else in the Navy. And so like they have to they have to work extra hard to build these small unit tactics, you know, weapons manipulation, stuff like that, in order to be a fundamental part of the team. And uh, I don't know, I, th- I think it goes like it works well for some of the guys, but in my mind, kind of kind of behind the power curve in in that respect, just to try and build up the foundational skills that someone someone in the infantry going into SF or Marsoc already has. You know, you got Rangers, you got SF, you got Marsoc, you got Recon. There's a lot of people tripping over each other. Seals. I think that's a good way to put it. There's um, this war has this GWAT has. Um, the needs have been so vast to do many of the same the same mission sets that the fundamental and doctrinal, um, uh, I guess, tasks that that each each service component has done in the past those kind of all got pushed to the side, and they've had to almost re-gear in order to meet the mission requirements that's faced downrange. It's money. It's more not mission. It's probably more money and relevance driven. I mean, because there's a conversation that happens a lot about why do we need all of these different special operators? And so everybody chases the same money and everybody tries to show their relevance. It's not always mission based. I don't think. I would say it's a healthy dose of both um, in that regard. Relevancy. Definitely. Definitely. But um, take for instance, the village stability operations, in Af- Afghanistan, you know, setting up, training a small force and trying to establish um, security within a small bubble around that village. So many places were, were identified that doctrinally, I think that that fits special forces much better than um, many of the, the other service components before MARSOC came yeah. into the picture. Um, and so special forces, in addition to all of their other their commitments across the globe. Um, yeah. Like they just couldn't meet all of the requirements. So that's where you start to get some of the, the mission overlap you were talking about where, I mean, no, no seal team is going to be doing a over a beach landing in Afghanistan. But if we just re gear them a little bit, they can take over a VSO. And then Marsoc came into the picture. They can definitely do VSO. Um, and that that feeds heavily into the relevancy. With more relevancy comes more money. So I think you're more money for training, you know, and things of that nature. I think it's all in the same cycle. It's just a matter of which one, you know, I, you know what I mean? I think we'd all agree <laughs> yeah. with that. Is to, which, yeah. yeah. The old self-licking ice cream cone. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> I think your size, the, the American military, the, 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 the pure size of it allows you to diversify and, and break down and have those specialties units created then, whereas the, the British military, for example, doesn't have the size that you have. So historically, we had the SAS, which was predominantly the Army, the SBS, which was predominantly the Marines, um, and I think it was 2006 they then merged it under the Special Forces Command and people started to go from the Army into the SBS uh, and vice versa from the Marines uh, over to the SAS. Um, but within those units then, they have all the different specialties that you guys tend to have units 
to do. So within each unit, they have mountain troop, um, air troop, and and they all live within the same squadron. So and then they rotate round as well. And so guys get the the experience and have a stint. Uh, doing a specialty such as mountain warfare or um, counter-terrorism or whatever it might be and then rotate around. So the longer time you spend in um, the SF world, you gain all those specialties to that high degree because you're spending a lot of time within um, that troop then. Uh, but, you know, you guys, because of your size, you've got the ability to, to say, well, actually, we'll dedicate an entire unit to doing I don't know that that was necessarily true 25, 30 years ago. I think it was clearly defined. I think there were clearly defined roles for every uh, organization under U.S. Special Operations Command. And I think it's been since the GWAP period that, you know, we've seen a lot of the overlap that is occurring within special operations. And a lot of it, you know, again, it goes back to that. Is it is it mission driven? Is it money driven? Is it organizations trying to build relevance within their own um, their own force, you know, so Navy's trying to do that with the SEALs, Marines doing that with MARSOC, Army's doing that with Rangers and SF, you know, Green Beret. So, you know, and then you have the Air Force, that Air Force Special Operations that is also in this whole mix with PJs and, and all of that. So you, you have a lot of that bit of overlap. Again, it, it's mission, it's money, it's relevance. Everybody's wanting to play in that same space. Definitely a part of it. There are some over some some overarching core SOCOM mission sets that everyone has their their key specialty. You know, like SEALs, um, maritime, army, land based. You know, uh, yeah. but there are some 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 core SOCOM mission sets that like they triaged what was going on in, in the world, Iraq, Afghanistan. We need to narrow in on on this core mission set under SOCOM, and that's just without giving up too much of our other commitments across the globe, you know, like, but definitely something to be said with having a, a military large enough where we can fight a war on two fronts and then still maintaining our geographical alignment across, across the force and still meet the vast majority of those, of those commitments. So as maybe, well. maybe we look at it, as you mentioned earlier, Dan, you know, about MARSOC and how one of the things that, you know, the Marine Corps did do was create through their um, pipeline and their qualification course is the ability to be a team player. And maybe that's more of what we've created here instead of an us versus them type of mentality. Um, we really do have similar mission sets. We do cross overlaps. Um, let's go ahead and embrace that. And let's just say that moving forward to your point, we all are trained in such a way that we can fight on multiple fronts. Now we, we, you know, a lot of people say that the, the opportunity for us to fight in multiple theaters is pretty much gone. We're more in a, a small um, type of, you know, engagement type of tactics and warfare moving forward. I think there is some advantage for all of these different services, in my opinion, to have kind of a blend and hodgepodge that I guess is what I'm trying to say. Because then you can fight on multiple fronts if need be, if the mission arises. Sure, absolutely. Um, and and, and Marsoc's kind of—I'm not going to say the the exception to the rule, but um, drawing heavily on Marsoc's roots from reconnaissance and force reconnaissance, um, 
They're almost a hybrid entity of SF and SEALs. Very good at, at maritime um, operations, whether it's um, Zodiac-based, small unit tactics, stuff like that. VBSS, you know, visit, search, board, and seizure. Um, I think I got that mixed up. Visit, board, search, and seizure. Um, or w whether it's unconventional warfare, you know, traditionally a task that, that went to Army Special Forces. Like, well-versed in both. Um, and they draw and they drew heavily and, and continue to draw heavily on lessons learned from from like sister services and things like that. Um, so maybe this would be a good opportunity then because you touched on it a bit, but maybe we should differentiate uh, between, say, recon and MARSOC, because I think there are people that go, OK, what's the difference here? And what are the similarities? And maybe you can kind of touch on that, especially you, Christian, since you're coming from one side of it. And, of course, Dan, you came from one and then went to the other. Absolutely. Um, so if you look at some of the some of the fundamental mission taskings of both organizations, um, to a large extent, not 100 percent across the board, um, there is some overlap um, as far as you know, um, maritime operations, VBSS, um, reconnaissance, deep reconnaissance, you know, things of that nature, limited scale raids, battle shaping or battle space shaping. It's not a question of stealing missions from one organization to give to another. It's more of, you have to think of it as who are you working for? Um, battalion, or reconnaissance battalion um, doctrinally is the eyes and ears of the infantry ground force commander. Um, like you have, he needs to know what's going on, you know, like what he's heading into. Um, and that is battalion reconnaissance um, working with the infantry. Again, going back to doctrine, everyone in the Marine Corps works for the O three eleven. It's just the way it is. Um, I think it works very well in that kind of a fight. Um, Force reconnaissance, they work for the Mew commander, the Marine Expeditionary Unit. They they give him um, the special operations capability, um, which is why they get more, more funding to train to more demanding and diverse mission sets, whatever the Mew may come across, whatever kind of situation they may be, they, they, they may encounter, uh, that's something that they have to be prepared for. And to, to be adequately prepared, they need the funding to train to those contingencies. Um, MARSOC, yes, it belongs to, or it it is a Marine service component. It is a Marine service component under SOCOM. So it is it answers to SOCOM. Um, it doesn't get its mission taskings from the Marine Corps. That's not to say that they won't support conventional Marine units, you know, right. Oftentimes they will, but it's mission taskings come from SOCOM and then it gets broken down farther to whatever geographic combatant command um, they are specifically aligned to. So if we take it outside the Marines now, then how would that different, how, how would MARSOC be different from say army Rangers and from SF? And most people probably listening know the difference between Army Rangers and SF, 
but it, it'll be interesting for you to kind of explain how MARSOC, as we talked about earlier, is a bit of each, a hybrid. But how does the mission set differ? Many of the mission sets um, remain the same. Um, I only know a handful of rangers and never having worked with them overseas, I would say that they're very direct action centric. Airfield seizure, um, very, very aggressive. Um, now, MARSOC and Special Forces, there is a significant amount of mission overlap there. Um, and I think this kind of goes back to MARSOC trying to find its identity. You know, I, I remember there was significant talk about which which niche within within SOCOM is MARSOC going to fill. And they were they were trying to figure that out because I mean they weren't quite sure which direction they were going to take it. So that's why they took or still take many missions that traditionally would would have gone to Army Special Forces. You know, I've been out of out of touch with them uh, going on two years now, so uh, I'm not real spun up on on which direction they're taking it. But during my time there, uh, I, I I do know that Army Special Forces was was very task saturated, so it wasn't necessarily a bad thing that. MARSOC was was taking missions that, if you look at it from a doctrinal point of view, would have gone to Army Special Forces, you know. Um, I, and I think that that goes to speak a lot to the, the direction that warfare is going these days. Um, we're, at least the past roughly 20 years, they've moved away from, you know, obviously the tank columns, you know, and the division-level assaults, and they've had to break it down into... Uh, small units, whether it's an infantry squad here and an infantry squad there, or uh, an ODA here, a SEAL team there. Um, Large-scale macro warfare doesn't... It's, it's not making the cut since we're, we've been fighting an organization that's so decentralized. You know, you can't, you can't take down the Taliban, for instance, with a tank column. You have to get in there know the people, know the landscape, the human terrain. That's a huge one. And that is a type of warfare that is infinitely better suited to a small unit. Um, much more personal kind of kind of warfare, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. No, and it's very similar to like SF in, the, in terms of team size and stuff. So if I ran down through the, these and I said, okay, so Marsoc, you're doing unconventional warfare. Are you doing foreign internal defense? Are you doing direct action, counterinsurgency, uh, special reconnaissance, counterterrorism, information operations, counterproliferation of WMD or security force assistance? Sounds like you're going to pretty much check every one of those boxes. The vast majority of them, yes, some more than others. Um, Counterproliferation, almost zero to none. You know, that's generally a varsity level tasking. You know, yeah, and and the amount of training that training that goes into being a competent force for something like that, um, there's not many people that are well suited to do it to do it well at the white soft level. You know, um, and again, there's there's other other or organizations that are infinitely better suited to do that because um, that's one of those high stakes mission sets like you can't you can't train to be just good enough you know like for that you you better damn well know that you're able to accomplish the mission so um but 
unconventional warfare, foreign internal defense. Um, those are two of the huge ones that, that MARSOC is, is taking over. And sometimes there's some overlap between foreign internal defense and, and into like combat foreign internal defense, you know, where you actually have a partner force and like you trained them up and now you're going to show them how to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, like those more and more as we progress through um, this type of warfare, those are more and more of the, the, the mission sets that are going to become available. And I think a key, a key, um, so, um, the, I'm trying to think of the name of it. The army just came out with a, with a unit solely dedicated to what's essentially foreign internal defense, That's fair. which oh, S-fab, S-fab. there it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And that speaks volumes to how much of that mission set is going to be coming down the pipe. You know, we won't get too much deep into that on this episode. Cause I, I can tell you that that was uh, kind of a thorn in the side of a lot of special forces guys. A hundred percent. Especially. 100%. Yeah. Especially when they decided to create uh, a flash and a, and a, oh, man. a patch. I wasn't going to bring that up. In a but yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they, they love that. Yeah. I mean, just so, Oh, you guys are like SFAB then, right? Yeah. Oh, man. The memes that came <laughs> yeah. out a couple of years ago were unbelievable. Uh, Priceless. Yes. Priceless. Um, well, Dan, I appreciate you coming on, man, and sharing this whole pipeline with us because I think a lot of people have been asking questions about the very thing that you just covered and some of the differences. And I'm sure, Christian, even on you know your social media, you get asked a lot about what the differences are between recon and uh, MARSOC. It gets you know asked a lot all over the place. Oh, and- yeah. Yeah. And, and without having somebody that went down through that pipeline that can describe the differences and, of course, you know, deployed with them and everything else, it's a lot it's a lot different. You're going to get a different response. But, um, you know, again, I, I knew some of the humble beginnings because I knew some of the guys that were engaged in the startup of MARSOC. But that was a long time ago. And so, you know, as with any organization, as you mentioned early on the show, it evolves and what it's evolved to today and what you guys continue to evolve it to, um, it's going to keep uh, morphing and changing. I will say that when you guys came out with the the new MARSOC uh, badge and everything, I thought that's pretty badass, by the way. Um, I, th- I thought it was a great representation of at least an organization and differentiating, you know, that, that set. Absolutely. And I, I think it was something that simply had to be done. I mean, within the Marine Corps, there's a strong mentality. And I think Christian, you can, you can second me on this, but there's, there's a, oh, a very yeah. strong mentality of nobody is special, you know, and to have a badge that signifies, um, a group of individuals who were, you know, who were different than everyone else. I mean, it, it was, it was bad enough that recon got to wear dual cool, you know, the old jump and dive bubble, <laughs> but uh, to have another badge, like no way, no way, not on my watch, you know, but no, <laughs> it, I, I'm definitely glad um, that the, uh, the commander of SOCOM convinced the, the, um, Commandant of the Marine Corps to allow it, you know, and I, I remember going through taking different polls, if you will, um, surveys as to which design we were going to go with. And 
I think all things being considered equal, I think the end product was actually pretty damn cool. Yeah. So now it did turn uh, out really cool. And of course, in a world where everybody gets a trinket or we create some type of badge so that somebody has something to display on their uniform or give them a medal, um, you know, so that we can each have a medal and something when you graduate from basic training, you know? So, I mean, everybody gets something like that. And in that type of age, and like you said, with the Marine Corps, we typically, you just had us Marine and that was it. Um, it's sort of like being on a football team and not having your name on the back of the Jersey. It's not important, you know, I know it needs to be separation. Yeah. And, And so, you know, to have now a different level of a, of a type of, warrior and operator and everything i think it was deserved i'm sure there's going to be marines out there that you know i didn't hear any but i was i'm sure that there are probably old school marines that didn't particularly like that but um again for coming out with a design i thought they hit a home run with that bad boy definitely um two things i i remember being at um Marstock and wearing dual cool initially and like it worked out great for me because i would get hemmed up for a bad haircut or long sideburns or something and the old first sergeant would be like you recon guys are out of control like yes yes we are you know and he would go to second recon or wherever to try and hunt down my first sergeant never found him but um <laughs> that worked out pretty well for me on a lot of occasions but um i i do like the throwback to the original Raiders where the, where the, the war Eagle is holding the original Raider patch. I just, I just wish that um, whichever authorizing entity was in charge had allowed the, the skull in the middle of the Southern cross on the badge itself. You know, that, that I think if they had allowed that, no complaints, you know, but again, I'm just thankful that we actually did get a badge to, to allow that, that, delineation as, as Christian pointed out, you know, and it was, it, it's definitely well-deserved lots of hard work went into it and I'm, I'm grateful for it. Yeah. Again, thank you for coming on the show, Dan. I really appreciate it. And uh, sharing your story and journey and stuff. We're going to have to have you back so that you can tell us some good stories and stuff. Again, I appreciate you for having me on and it was absolutely my pleasure. So again, like I'm looking forward to whenever next time is. So thank you very much.